the Weezy Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. Welcome to Podcast 74. I'm a little bit husky today, um, but I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers, and I'm sat today on the Wiggly sofa with... Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And no Farmer Phil. No, no, Phil's not with us. Why isn't Phil with us today? Farmer Phil has gone to the BASP AGM. Right. BASP, British Association of Seed Producers, AGM at Stoneley. So he's off there. Stimulating stuff. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, not, as the case may be. Hmm. Yeah. Which seed shall I plant? Will you ask him what he's done today when he gets home? Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. So you've been a poorly girl, haven't you? I have been a bit poorly. I went on the Nuffield Scholars trip to Canada, yeah. to Calgary, and I think the plane spread germs or something onto us all. So out of the 19 scholars, five were bedded, and I don't mean that like you're thinking, Richard. <laughs> right, right. Five were actually made to go to bed due to illness. Right. And one was bedded. Um, and <laughs> oh, really? You haven't yeah, you <laughs> told me anything about this. And I must say, just a quick shout out to them all. Um, it was great to meet you all, all my new Nuffield Scholar buddies who are studying everything you can think of from easy care sheep through to nutrigenics, through to uh, family farms, you name it, in agriculture. They're studying it. Right, right. And, of course, I was studying blogging and podcasting, but that was fine. Yeah. There was another chap who'd got a blog from Australia who was studying um, the way that farmers can alter communication. Right. So, yeah. you know, I had a good chat. Yeah, yeah. And I also should say thank you to my Nuffield sponsor, which is Alan and Anne Beckett. And they've got a fantastic farm shop just on the roundabout near Birmingham. Just on the... <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent bit of publicity for them. Ulster. Oh, in Ulster? Yeah. All right, excellent. Which... <laughs> That's really confusing now. Uh, Not Ulster. Ulster. Oh, right, OK. Ulster, as, as in Ulcester. Exactly right. Right, right. Yeah. OK, this week's show, we are going to bring you what colour feeder you need to use if you want to attract goldfinches. Right. We're going to find out why one listener thinks that Ricardo should be Prime Minister... Yeah. I haven't really? mentioned that before. No, you haven't. You don't. You tend to spring these on me, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Mm. And we'll find out if you've actually made it onto the weakest link. And I know that. Yeah, you... well, that, we haven't talked about that. No, we? well, no, we no. have, dear. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. You obviously haven't listened to the last few podcasts. No, not at all. So we'll find out how that went. We'll find out which slugs are any good for your garden, how the farm walk went, and loads more. Right, excellent. We've got a little bit of feedback on last week's podcast about organic versus non-organic, the argument with Robin Page. Right, yeah. And it's from Nigel. And he says, Hi, Heather. Thanks for the great podcasts. I never miss one. I just listened to number 73 this morning on the way to work. Very interesting discussion on organic, non-organic, which goes beyond the usual clear-cut chemicals are bad argument. I've got a comment to make. Robin remarked that he's never seen anyone 
at the doctor's surgery asking for organic medicines and he used this as an argument for specific use of chemicals in farming. It could be the reason why he's never seen these people at the doctor's surgery is that they've gone to their alternative therapist. Much more organic. Excellent. Thanks. Look forward to the next one. Nigel. Oh, that's good, good feedback. Yeah. yeah. It's got a point as well, hasn't it? Did you use any alternative therapy on your um, injuries? Um, no, in actual fact. I did, try, I did take some EM. I was taking EMX, uh, having a swig from the EMX bottle <laughs> occasionally. Comfrey is supposed to be very good. We had some, uh, uh, Frankie Devereaux emailed me and said, take, take some Comfrey, it's supposed to be a good bone healer. Mm. But I didn't take it because uh, actually, we, I, mean, I know we've remarked about this before, it tastes utterly disgusting and, and it, you know. But I, if I was older, then I'd have gone out searching for that comfrey. But, uh, but because I, you know, I have youth on my side, I, I kind of assumed that things would heal relatively quickly anyway. Obviously, dementia is setting. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah. I tell you what, on the EM front, I took EMX, as you know, yeah. since Christmas. Yeah. And no problems at all. Right. And just before I went to Canada, I ran out. Right. And since I've been in Canada, I've got this bug. Bingo. So I asked Sam to order me another bottle. <laughs> I can't work out if it's psychological or whether no, it's true. I but I've got I some more now, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and here we go with a bit more feedback, and it's from one of our favourite possible listeners because he actually started the cat row. <sighs> Simon, Hi, but this is not about cats. He says, on a completely separate note to cats, <laughs> which I'm not reading out, my two children have a gardening club after school and I was horrified to hear that they had spent a whole session brushing up and collecting leaves only to throw them in a skip. My wife asked why they weren't being composted and she was told it was because of health and safety. I've had a quick trawl on Google. I can't see any reason why it shouldn't be composted if it's overseen by an adult. Do you have any information on this? They're, that school in question out there, bonkers, aren't they? They are. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mince your words, right? But no, Mitch? no, it's, it's funny because, I, interestingly, I've just been working at the local school, Kingston School, over the last couple of weeks, and the kiddies come out with their paper towels and their apple cores, so a nice mix of nitrogen and carbon every single day. You know, they traipse out, a couple of kiddies obviously have a rotor, and they empty that into their compost bin. Absolutely superb. So those guys, of course, are going to have great compost for their veggie patch as well. So now lots of schools are taking up and, and using compost. And, you know, and leaves mixed with grass make some of the best compost that you can possibly get. So good stuff. So I don't know why that school is doing that, really. I think that probably they're getting muddled up. I think they're delusional. Okay. Anyway, he says he's got another rant coming on. Right. Oh, Simon. <laughs> Bring it oh. on. Bring it on. I used Simon as an example the other day in one of my talks because Simon recently let me know that some of his solitary bees were hatching from his solitary bee tube. So I, I, I replied because I saw a worker bumblebee this year on the 16th of February, a worker bumblebee, which must mean that the queen had started her colony in January. Amazing, amazingly early. Anyway, that's besides the point. But Simon had said that previously, when he tried to slow the development of the larvae inside his solitary bee nester, he's put them in the fridge to slow them down if he's thought we were having a really mild weather. I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing that, but yeah, I'm kind of assuming that that's what he's doing. <laughs> and uh, and, and, it, and it seems that it's worked quite well in the past. But the difficulty, of course, with those little bees hatching now is that there might not be enough forage about for them. But it, doesn't it mean because it is warmer that there is more forage? You know, I saw a whole programme about the, the fact that hedgehogs were likely to starve 
but it seems to me that everything seems to be waking up so isn't it just if we have a frost that causes a problem that does cause a problem and of course we do have frost and if we did have a big dump of snow and it got, it really sort of chilled down for a week then that would be sufficient to bump off all those creatures that are out and about that have come out of their, their hibernation and they're looking for food and especially vulnerable creatures like little solitary bees for instance I mean bumblebees aren't so bad because they can generate their own body heat to a certain extent so if they come out in the middle of winter I mean I've seen bumblebees flying about in the snow so if they do come out there's every chance they can go back to, to hibernating again but solitary bees of course don't have the luxury of being able to do that um, so if they can't find sufficient food uh, and you know and a, and a relatively warm place to spend the night then they they often die so you but don't isn't it just it. part of life in the sense that in the summer there'll probably be more insects so then the birds will get a really good feast and you know isn't it just let it go. Yeah, I mean, it can be. It's just that we're all aware that climate is being affected by human behaviour. Then the problem is there is that balance, you know, and, and the, the fact that honeybee populations are being affected by varroa mites and bumblebee populations are again affected by human behaviour, agriculture, the way gardeners don't think about providing habitat in their garden for bumblebees. And as a consequence, all these really essential pollinators are suffering. And, you, and as you know, two out of every three mouthfuls of food that we eat are, are uh, insect pollinated. And if we don't have these creatures around us, then we are scuppered. So practically in our garden, what could we do now? I think that lots of people now have, have probably coming out into the garden for the first time since, since November, you know, and seeing what, <laughs> see what's going on. In actual fact, there's probably not a great deal that needs doing now in the garden. In most instances, it's just a question of watching the bulbs come through. You know, looking at the crocuses and the daffs and the, the snowdrops. Most of the snowdrops have pretty much gone over now, but there are other things that are coming through. Flowers like rosemary, for instance, that have bloomed right through the year are looking really, really good now. And people, and that's a, that's a fantastic plant to have. Because, of course, not only does it provide pollen and, and uh, nectar for inverts through the winter, really, but also it's a fantastic plant to eat. So, again, it's kind of a multifaceted plant, which, again, I know we've talked about before. But generally, it's a question of just getting out there now and looking and look, finding the frogs that are spawning in the, in the, in the pond. But again, going back to Kingston School, I took out something like four of those, you know, those blue planters that we've got out, those big poly boxes? Yeah. Four of those full of frog spawn, chock-a-block full of frog spawn. In fact, I've never seen so many frogs in, in one place. And Michael, interestingly, this morning said this year he'd seen his frogs spawning some two weeks before that he saw them spawning last year. But last winter, we, it was almost a proper winter, wasn't it? Kind of cold and long. And this winter, you know, it's been nondescript. We've, we've had a couple of brief periods of cold weather, but otherwise it's just wet and warm. And eight inches of snow, babe. Oh, yeah, but that was just here and gone, wasn't it? You know, a couple of days, gone. It was pretty cool while it lasted, but it didn't last for long. And also, what about eating honey? That'll encourage honeybees. Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, well, it didn't nice, it'll give, give people the reason to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to grow, grow bees and keep bees. And now you've got all this rosemary. Great thing to go with it. Spring lamb. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the right yeah. way around, Rich. Oh yeah, absolutely. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, here we go. We've got more feedback before we get on to slags, Frankie who you went to see last year who got those wonderful blue tits in the can box yeah yeah has written in you know she's got a new garden yeah yeah they've moved to Bodenham I think haven't they? she has indeed as she says your yellow finch feeder works a treat I've only had it for a week and I've already had four goldfinches using it and the bird box cam has a got a great tit investigating and we're hoping to watch it nest soon 
Thank you, Wiggly Wigglers, Frankie and Nick. So is it that yellow that does it? I've got no idea. I've got no idea. It's got to be, isn't it? Sounds possible, doesn't it? And when, okay. you know, if you're if you're a finch and you're looking for the telltale signs of a of your feeding colleague with a you know the telltale sign of a of a goldfinch, are those wispy yellow flecks? So uh, yeah, could well be. There we are. Got a review on iTunes, and obviously this is a corker. Five star, Wiggly Wonders, and this is by Longing for Green Space. I just love this podcast. I always download it a week behind so that I can listen to it on a Monday morning on the way to the office. And here's the good bit. Oh, and Richard should run for government. We would have the most environmentally friendly country in the world with no cats. (laughs) Great work, guys. You just can't leave it, can you? (laughs) They just can't leave it. Excellent. Good stuff. Good stuff. I thought you'd Yeah, thanks for that. And Rich, you've been helping me out once again with my grow your own column. Right. (laughs) Unless they ask me about worms, I'm a bit scuppered. Right. So here's the question that came in this month. Although slugs can be pests in the garden, I've heard there are actually beneficial slugs. Is this true? And if so, what do they do and how do I recognise them? And that's from our cook. Well, it's interesting. Every time I do a talk, you know, the favourite question that you're ever going to get, and, and I know the, the, the panellists on Garden Question Time, everybody always wants to ask, how do we get rid of slugs? How do we control slugs? And they're our worst nightmare. But the reality is that there are, I think there are about 30 different species. Well, there are 30 different species of slugs. There are only four of those species that affect us in the garden. And there's garden slug, the field slug, the keel slug, and the black slug. Do you remember we found that great crested newt under that water I do. last year? And there were some lovely big grey with orange dots. I do. And those tiny white, really white eggs next to those slugs. Well, those black slugs, because they do take you know, slightly different forms. Wait a minute, a grey and orange speckled yeah, yeah. slug is a yeah. black slug. That was a, that was a black slug. But they, so they take slightly different forms. But those are the only guys that are going to affect us in the garden. And of course, the unfortunate thing is, is that they like the food that we like. Why, where are the others then? Well, they're milling around, but they've got their own niche. So they're only eating certain types of plants and vegetation um, that don't concern us, really. So in many respects, to kill slugs, but certainly using slug pellets and things like that, uh, it's kind of indiscriminate. And I would always say never never use slug pellets anyway. I mean, if if you're going to use something to kill slugs off with, then use nematodes because they are species-specific to the extent where they're going to kill slugs. And beer traps. Beer traps are absolutely fabulous. One of the reasons I can't use beer traps is that... You're an alcoholic. No, we've got glowworms at home, haven't we? You've seen the glowworms. And, and the unfortunate thing is I'm always thinking that if a glowworm sort of ambled its way up to a big brown garden snail or something like that, or a big black slug, latched itself on, because they've got little hooks in their, in their head really, latched themselves on and started supping up the juice of the snail, and the snail would carry on ambling through. But if the snail was just ambling along and ended up, oh, I might go into that beer trap, then the poor old glowworm would go with it. Because sometimes oh, snails can kind. survive beers. A bit. And of course, you know, they're such fantastic little creatures. I wouldn't want to, to compromise populations of, of glowworms inadvertently. So I can't use beer traps, but nematodes I've used, and they, they work fabulously well. But it's worth thinking that, you know, slugs are there for a reason. You know, they're essential decomposers in their own right. In a compost heap, they're going to help break down the waste. In the garden, they're going to eat your dog manure. <laughs> you know, if you go out in the morning, <laughs> I'll bet you see all sorts of slugs crawling around on, on toast poo. 
<laughs> and jam now too. Yeah, and jam as well now. So, so yeah, they're, they're fairly essential. But unfortunately, you know, we in, in Britain, we've got the perfect climate for slugs. You know, it's mild and it's wet. And, and as a gunswear, it's because they breed so prolifically, we, we tend to be inundated. Another thing, another thing I should mention is that people always say about slug pellets, and I always say, no, no, never use slug pellets. I mean, perhaps there are instances where you could use them, but I would Not in the find garden. imaginative ways of controlling slugs. Never use them. There's always a chance of primary poisoning of pets, and there's always a real chance of secondary poisoning, even though people say, oh, no, you know, our product, there's no chance of secondary poisoning. I mean, ground beetles, for instance, you know, they would prefer, they often prefer to eat slugs that have been poisoned with slug pellets. And they're one of the most essential allies in the garden. And, and funny enough, I, I, I did a talk the other day and a guy came up to me and said, why do you, why do you say you know, not to use slug pellets? We had a, a the speaker came in and, and they said, you know, slug pellets are absolutely fine to use. I said, oh, right, what were, what were they talking about? What was the speaker talking about? So oh, growing hostas. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, yeah, right. And growing hostas, Fine, grow hostas. In actual fact, what you do tend to find that you'll get a really robust hosta after a few years of being <laughs> eaten by slugs and snails. But if you grow them in pots and then perhaps put a little copper strip around the pot, then that often deters slugs and snails from getting up there in the first place. What's the copper do? Well, it what? gives them a little electric shocks. Alternatively, what? just Whoa. grow. Alternatively, just grow plants that slugs don't like. What's the copper for? The copper gives them little electric shocks. Little, little Get electric shocks. Get out of it. Absolutely Richard. true. Now, some Listen people. Listen to this camera, right? Some people have no, mixed no, no. experiences of this, and some people swear by it and think it absolutely works a treat. And others, like Jenny, for instance, said she had little experience of it working. Copper but I found gives this slug and I put, an electric shock. Yeah, and, and interestingly, I've put things like hostas in coppers, you know, that we yeah. used to boil clothes with many, many years ago, and put copper strips around there, just hammer out some old copper pipe and put that around there and it works and it seems to work a treat. Yeah. Let us know, listener. I think this might be a little bit of Ricardo but what we should rambling. Say, what we should say before we finish on slugs is that Michael, who is our endearing recordist, swears by eggshells. And, uh, and Michael, well, he says, he, yeah, bloody eggshells. He says all his eggshells up all summertime scrunches them up Mary's busily in the kitchen they're scrunching up the eggshells into tiny little particles and then they spread them around their, their precious flora in the, uh, in the springtime they've got nothing on have they <laughs> <laughs> bet that gets edited out yeah. <laughs> and Ricardo mm. you've been on the buying bonanza yes for the new catalogue which I have the proof here listen listener now what have we got here it's like an adventure park, isn't it, of Ricardo's moments. <laughs> so can there's I, a fire steel, a fire steel, and a storm kettle. Yeah. Give it to me, Rich. What fire is steel, this storm. about? Well, storm kettles. Uh, fire steels are something that we kind of stumbled across. The storm kettles are ace because I remember several times years ago, a friend of mine uh, who lives in Devon has a, a storm kettle and he takes it fishing with him. And so we always make we always make a brew using a storm kettle, and, and it, it's, we thought it was a fantastic thing to take out in the garden with you. If you're in the garden and you want to make a cup of tea, you don't want to traipse back in the house or something. It's a brilliant way of cutting some of your foliage, your shrubs, your your you know dead brush and leaf litter or something like that, and uh, and making a little fire in the bottom of your storm kettle and heating up some water with it to make a cup of tea in the garden. What a superb idea! But if you really want to do it in a completely self-sufficient way, then you can use the fire steel <laughs> to uh, to uh, create some sparks. Developed 
by the Swedish Defence Department as a reliable source of hot sparks. In fact, it makes a spark that's 3,000 degrees. Indeed, so yeah. I hope you don't blow up your storm kettle. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you think, oh, that spark's got to be really hot. But actually, I mean, once you're there striking, there's sparks all over the place. It doesn't seem to, you know, you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right. And uh, Karen and I, we, we managed to set fire to all sorts of cardboard boxes and newspaper in the in dispatch the other day. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And everybody was bracing themselves next to the fire bell for, uh, <laughs> for evacuation. Yes, but, that's uh, a very sophisticated fire bell that Jody's put up as a new health and safety requirement. Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't rung it. Very, very few people have walked past it and rung it. It's, uh, it's very tempting. Ding, ding. Yeah. We'll see. Now then, if you get a chance to come to London next week, and you want to know about making your own podcast, I'm speaking at the Corporate Podcasting Summit on the 19th and the 20th of March. And I'm also meeting up with Anna Farmery from The Engaging Brand and Claire Rakes from Blog Angel. And we're going out for tea. Very nice. Hopefully by then, because Anna and I have got a podcast about dieting, we'll have lost collectively three stone. Really? Yeah. Get on. Obviously, I've lost two pounds. (laughs) Well done, Anna. (laughs) But it sounded good. Okay. And lastly, Rich, I've got an email for you about starlings. Right. So this is from Irene Farley. She says she's been feeding the birds for quite some time. She uses all the usual feeders and the types of seeds, nuts and mixtures... And her query is, is there any way to prevent the starlings from bullying the smaller birds away from the feeders? The starlings appear to almost attack the food that she puts out and she and dares anything else to have a go. She's even seen them on the hanging-filled coconuts, which are supposed to be for the smaller, agile birds. Any comments? Uh, yeah, I did say that you're going to have to learn to love your starlings. Oh, we're looking out on one, scoff- oh, scoffing the that. contents of that bird table. They are messy eaters, aren't they? And they are. But what an astonishingly pretty bird. I mean, isn't it a beautiful bird? I love to see them in a whole bunch of them. Because yeah, they are yeah. like bullies. But they I are. always think of them they're as a rubble, the aren't they? They're around. a rubble, you know. But they're, yeah. they're, they've got so much charisma, you know. And I, I, they're, a, they're a kind of much maligned birds. But again, isn't it funny that if people have lots of starlings and they think that's a problem because they want to see other birds. Isn't it human nature? We want something that we haven't got. <laughs> people who don't have starlings in their garden think, oh, isn't it such a shame we don't have that vibrancy of flocks of starlings? And there isn't really anything that, uh, that she can do to uh, to discourage the starlings because you know if you're if you're encouraging your birds into the garden then you know you you have to have the the collective. But they can't um, be eating all the time, can they? So the other birds no, must no. be getting a chance. No, they must be getting a chance. But by and large, they're they're quite aggressive and they're quite feisty. But they are a beautiful bird. They're a species in decline right the way across Europe, unfortunately. One of the most amazing spectacles. They even have adverts on TV now, don't they, with those massive flocks of starling getting together before they roost at night. And that is one of the most amazing. And if anybody ever gets a chance to go and see that sort of spectacle, well worth watching. And it happens in Hereford, doesn't it? Quite a lot. It did, it did happen in Hereford, I think. But wasn't there a situation that there was a massive, great... <laughs> coniferous roost and then they cut down all the conifer trees to try and discourage the starlings I don't know but I I saw a chap on the telly and his car was covered in starling poop and he was saying how awful it was and I thought for God's sake it's an honour isn't it you have to put up with it there we are so Rich you're off where are you going Uh, I'm going down to Caldecott to uh, give a talk 
Caldicott Castle? Uh, no, Caldicott Rugby Club, I think. But it's not the rugby club. I think it's the rugby club premises have been... No, it's the Scout Hall. That's where it is. Caldicott Scout Hall. Caldicott Gardening Club. Have a wonderful day. Have I know you've day. got to rush off, so thank you very much. I'll see you in a bit. Here's a very, very late Monty's Wormcast. Monty's Worm Facts. Conditions like temperature and soil moisture affect when and if a worm cocoon hatches. If conditions are not great, then the hatching is delayed. Thank you, Monty, and bye from us. Bye. Bye. And I'm meeting up with a load of women in podcasting. Excellent. Um, Anna Farmery from the Engaging Blank. Engaging Bland. <laughs> Yeah, that seems appropriate. <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> this is inappropriate. <laughs> Get <laughs> 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 I've never met her, but she, I'm sure she's quite nice already. And our cook says, although slugs can be pests in the garden, I've heard there are actually beneficial slugs. Why are you shaking your head? I'm scratching my nose. Oh, bugger. Oh, the <laughs> I thought he was depressed. Is that-